Your son is accused of killing another kid in school. Whether or not the accusation is false, your life is turned upside down awaiting trial. In the eyes of the public, the whole family is guilty. And while your family is under the microscope, how do you remain a believer in your child's innocence? Today, I'm dropping you into a plot of defending Jacob. You know, my whole life, I strived not to bite my nails, to have, like, longer nails. And then when I do, I <laughs> kind of regret it at certain times because of the chicken juice. Chicken juices. Don't say the word juices ever, ever again. I went to KFC, okay? Sometimes it is an obsession. I go there a couple of times a week at times when I crave it, you know. Don't start me with how political KFC is and, like, what is your order and start judging me on it. Shut it. Shut it. But, you know, of course, I go there mainly for chicken because it's good for chicken. And then I dive my little, <laughs> like, long-ass nails now into it and then afterwards you have to clean it. It's like a whole-ass procedure. Also, chicken juices just means oil because it's oily as fuck. They got it. They got it. What else could it have mean? What else could it have meant? That wasn't even grammatically correct the first time. So, defending Jacob. It is on Apple TV. I got this little baby, this iPad for... Look at it, I love the cover, and the cover is just never shown. For my birthday, and when you get an Apple product, like, from Apple, even if it's refurbished or whatever, you get, like, three months of Apple TV for free. And I was just, like, debating what the hell do I want to watch. And I really wanted to cover this story of a bank robber and the kids that reported on their father on the main channel. So here, I wanted to examine that from a whole different angle and examine what would you do if you learned your child might have killed another. And this show kind of makes you sit in that and that's what he does well. There's plenty of things that he doesn't, but <laughs> it's just like, stick with me till the end to figure out, do you want to watch it or not? But the show goes between the present time, so the grand jury and Andy Barber, who was the former DA, former district attorney, being questioned, and the past when their son was actually accused of a crime. So the first episode starts with the grand jury questioning. We see the father of the family, Andy Barber, who is played by Chris Evans, and he's questioned he has just waived the Fifth Amendment right. Andy gets asked if his family was living like a happy, normal life before the murder of a teenager called Ben Rifkin. And then we have a flashback of what the family was actually like. So we see Andy waking up his son, Jacob, and then we see the biggest kitchen in the freaking TV series history. They're just having the mundane talk, like his mom and him are questioning him on this vocabulary test, like prepping him for school. As they're eating breakfast. Lori, the mom, and Andy are talking about this new podcast that you have to check out. It's pretty much like uh, current affairs. And then they go drive this kid to school. Lori goes to children's cottage. She works with abandoned and vulnerable children. And then Andy goes to the DA office. Actually, he goes directly to court here, and we see how skilled he is, how great he is at his job, because his client didn't even appear, but he manages like to convince the judge to move the trial regardless. He's in that courtroom for two minutes and then goes out. And as he's grabbing the coffee from outside, we see that he even has an 
assistant and this assistant is literally like awkwardly running him through his schedule and then he gets a phone call and immediately he tells this assistant like clear my schedule for the day because this is all my energy is gonna go into. And in the meantime, in Jacob's school, we hear the siren. Everybody get on the floor. And I was like, oh God, is this gonna be like some sort of glamorization of school shooting? It's like, I don't know where this thing is going. But it's not. But everybody is on the floor. And that is the whole energy that nobody really knows what the hell had happened. They're, you know, calling their parents, sort of texting them their goodbyes, saying, hey, this is what's going on. Do you know more information than us? And Jacob is doing the same. His dad, Andy, is now on the scene of the crime. And I was like, is this realistic? Like, he's DA. Don't, like, DAs spend, like, all of their time in the courtroom? Why is he, as a detective, on the scene of the crime? Like, this makes, like, no sense. Let me know if I'm wrong on this. But I feel like this is one of those things where you kind of get things mixed up in a TV series and gives us the unrealistic expectations of what happens in real life. But Detective Duffy is there. And Detective Duffy was the person that played the wife in Clickbait, the other minisode that I have done, like, I think two weeks ago. Listen, the worlds collide. I love it. I love her as an actress, but I was just like, oh, I know this bitch. So she's a detective. And they have found the body of a teenage boy called Ben Rifkin. The only things they know right now is that the boy was stabbed three times in the chest, that then it seems like the body was just pushed down the ravine and there was no effort to conceal it. So he was kind of like head down, face down in this ravine. This lady was just passing by. She thought maybe somebody fell, they needed help. So she kind of turned him around and then saw all of the blood and called the police. Andy asks about the weapon, and they realize there was no weapon around Ben, and also his phone still isn't on him, which is super strange because the kid is a teenager. And at that moment, Jacob gets through to his dad. Jacob tells him about the school being on lockdown, saying there must be some psycho shooter around, and then he doesn't give him any information. He just says to him, like, it's gonna be okay. And then Jacob is like, and dad sort of like one last thing kind of way, but he doesn't actually say anything. He tries to get through Lori, but Lori is inside of this meeting. They're reviewing kind of like the ad for the children's cottage, and she is the voice behind it. And this is when she gets the message from another person in the meeting to like switch on the news. And on the news, we see everything that Andy has just witnessed. The body of a 15-year-old found down the ravine. So she immediately gets out, calls Jacob. The police have set up a tip line and they're walking door to door, trying to get an eyewitness, trying to see who has seen something that morning. That evening, Andy returns home, and he returns from the Rifkins, from the victim's family. And he has just spoken with them about the evidence, about anything that they might have, and he knows that there's only a partial fingerprint. So they're still processing that, they don't know whose fingerprint it is. And, you know, he's just telling Lori and Jacob how tragic this crime scene is. And both of them are just checking in with Jacob to see how he's doing. They call him Jake, by the way, which, like, what is the whole point of the naming him Jacob if you're gonna call him the most basic name? It's just one of the things that pissed me off during this series. And they're just asking him, like, did you know Ben? And, you know, Jacob is playing it off, like, barely knew him. Like, he was 
kind of a jerk. Like, he's alright. You know, didn't know him much. Jacob tells them they are in class together and that Ben is kind of full of himself. And he doesn't elaborate much. So, they just assume that the two of them aren't really close and just give him the classic of, like, we are here for you, you know, if you need anything. But the kid is literally fucking cold as a ham. Turkey? I think it's Turkey. The parents don't really seem to be able to get any more information out of him, so they just give him the classic, like, we are here for you, we're here if you need anything, and then he goes to his room. And that evening we see how this is starting to take a toll on both Andy and Lori, but it's starting to take a toll from perspective of it is bad, as bad as this seems to say, I'm glad that it was somebody else's kid and not mine that was found dead in a ditch. The next morning, Duffy and Andy go to school to interview the kids. I'm not gonna mention how, why the DA is interviewing the kids. Listen, I'm not. They almost took him off the case because of the conflict of interest, but that is yet to happen. So, basically, just him and Duffy just sitting, kid after kid, coming into, like, a PAE hall, and none of them is saying anything. In fact, most kids are just like, hey, are you Jacob's dad? And he's like, yes. So, you can kind of see that they might not want to say anything because it is somebody's dad, which, again, it is a conflict of interest, my man. Get the fuck out of that situation so these kids can actually talk. And the last one that they interview was this kid called Sarah. And Sarah seems to know more. You get the feeling that she does have some further information. So, she asks Andy if he has spoken to Jacob about Ben. And he's like, no, should I have? Like, is there a reason? She's just like, nope, just wondering. And as she leaves that room after being questioned, this kid, Derek, is just like around the corner on the stairs saying, what did you tell them? Just as Andy and Duffy are done for the day, Duffy gets a phone call. And the phone call is about a potential suspect. Because this is a teenager, they looked at all of the sex offenders in the area, and one name popped up. And the name is Leonard Putz. It's this 36-year-old guy who groped a kid and then got out of the prison. So, he had an incident of exposure upon a minor, and then now he's out on the streets. So, somebody is looking into the connection between Putz and Ben. The next scene is on the wake in the Rifkin family. And Andy is just constantly being questioned, like, is there any further information? Literally by every single person. So, after some time, he just goes to Lori and tells her, like, I'm just gonna go upstairs, pick up Jacob, who is in the room with the other kids playing games, and then head off home, because there's just no point. So, as he's walking upstairs, he sort of just looks into this open room, and it seems to be Ben's bedroom, and his dad is sitting on his bed. He's just crushed, of course, understandably. And, you know, he spots Andy looking at him and just tells him, you know, your son Jacob looks like a nice boy. You must be proud. There's nothing I wouldn't have done for my own son. Who could feel this kind of rage against him? You know, what separates these people? Like, the people who are just in school hanging out with my kid and somebody who would actually have this amount of rage in order to kill him. 
and the promises bands that they are looking hard into this you know they are processing the fingerprint everything is gonna be closed soon he picks up jacob and in the car ride back home jacob is again completely unfazed like you cannot tell me that they could have found a better actor as this kid this kid was brilliant in it i was literally like i can't read your face I can't actually tell you what the fuck you're thinking about because you were just on a wake where a child from your class was killed and you're talking about capturing the rye and how just like in the book, people in real life are super fake and you're like, okay, tone deaf much? The fuck? Andy and Jacob pick up this dinner in a diner. He's busting like some dead jokes. I kind of get... <laughs> it just spat all over my face. I kind of get Chris Evans' appeal after watching this. Because, you know, after that dinner, Jacob is upstairs sleeping. Lori is like, yeah, I'm gonna go to sleep as well. And Andy is there again, having the police files, investigating Leonard Potts on his own. What the fuck is going on on the street? I always record when the school hours here in the UK end. So it's like 3.30ish and it's like the loudest fucking noise on the street. Why does the school in the UK finish so early? Somebody is yet to answer me that question. So Chris Evans, Andy Barber, he is sitting on his table going through his laptop right now. And he gives a call to Duffy being like, hey, you asleep because I'm not, bitch. Like, we need to investigate this guy you know there was no sexual motive on the scene of the crime still he's a sex offender he might have known him there must be something there and as he hangs up on the lady boss duffy he gets a notification and apparently his laptop has the connection has the inbox of the tip line mail and in this email where it seems somebody just uses like an email generator to send him this, the link that he sees is to this Instagram post about Ben. So it's kind of like, rest in peace, Ben. And under it, Jacob posted, Ben is dead. Why are you writing him messages? And under that, as a response, Derek another kid from the school, said, everyone knows you did it, Jacob, as you have a knife. So, upon reading this, Andy's like, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it, right? Like, I'm not just gonna go upstairs where my son is sleeping inside of his room and search for a knife. Like, the social media is playing up with me. But then you see him going into the room, literally going through drawers, through his wardrobe, everywhere. And, you know, after searching for a couple of minutes, he just has, like, his head in his strong biceps in his strong arms. He said, he's not helping. He's wearing tight shit. Why are you not wearing more comfortable shit? I am, I'm just an observer. I'm just an observer, just checking out Chris Evans's arms. His beard is more appealing. End of story. I might even start watching Marvel movies. I'm not. Not for Chris. For Hemsworth Brothers? Sure. For Chris Evans? No. Back to the fucking story, you thirsty bitch. He's searching for a knife and he kind of just, you know, puts his head into his arms being like, I mean, what the fuck? Like, I just read an Instagram post. Like, why did I just believe it? But then there's one place in his son's room where he hasn't searched and it's right next to where he's sleeping. On the bedside, there's like a small drawer in that little desk. And when he opens it, he finds a knife. The next morning, of course, he hasn't slept, so literally Lori wakes up next to him and he's like, 
we need to talk. And then we see the confrontation in the kitchen, where Jacob is just playing it up. Like, I mean, everybody has a knife. And they're like, no, they don't. What the fuck? Why do you have a knife? Like, it looks bad. Somebody's calling you out on the socials about having knife. Why do they know? How do they know? And we find out that Jacob has just brought it to school. He basically just bought it with his own money, apparently. And then he brought it to school to just, like, show it around. And now, of course, in retrospect, knowing that the kid has been stabbed three times, people are starting to spread rumors. As to why Derek might have actually accused him, well, Jacob says, like, kids on the internet write mean things. Like, it doesn't mean much. Can I have it back? Like, the knife is mine. And both Andy and Lori are like, no, you're a fucking psychopath. Like, no, you cannot have it back. Like, we're gonna figure out what the hell to do with this, but, like, the police is searching for a knife. You can't have it back. And after that, Jacob is like, okay, cool, I mean, I'm gonna be late for school, so I'm just gonna go. And he does it so brilliantly, where you are actually questioning, like, either this kid is innocent or he is a psychopath. Like, there's no in-between. After he leaves, Lori is asking Andy, well, what are we going to do with a knife? And Andy says he is gonna take care of it, it's not a crime to own one. And then we see him binning a knife, and actually sitting outside in a car watching the trash man actually, you know, take his own garbage bin and pour it into the trash van. Great description. Sick. After potentially getting rid of a murder weapon, we see him inside of the police station as Leonard Potts is getting interviewed by Duffy. And he isn't saying much. He says he does go to that park, like he takes walks there, but he isn't giving them anything. And that's when his lawyer, called Joanna, shows up and it just seems like it's a dead lead. But Andy wants them to pursue. Andy wants them to still investigate him, regardless of him having a lawyer. As the volunteers are rallied up to search for the murder weapon, Sarah speaks to Jacob in school, telling him that Derek has been spreading more things around and that she wants to talk later. Meanwhile, during the grand jury where Andy is being questioned, Neil asks him, well, you have disposed of a knife. Why would you do that without the actual knowledge that it wasn't a murder weapon? And Andy tells him he did it to protect his son against his own stupidity, because he never believed that the knife was actually the murder weapon. Meanwhile, during that search party that they are referring to in the grand jury, Ben Rifkin's dad comes angrily at Andy, telling him that he has been taken off the case, so he shouldn't be there, and, you know, just call up his boss. Basically, you have been sitting on your ass, there hasn't been any progress within days, so I have requested for you to be taken off the case. And Andy is like, what the fuck? So he calls his own boss, and they tell him, indeed, to come in. As he is going into the office, we see Jacob walking home, following the exact same route, and from a distance, seeing that the police is in the neighborhood, that they have actually just been staking out in front of his house. So he decides to just turn around and go for a walk. And the reason behind that might be that the fingerprint, the partial fingerprint found on the victim, belongs to him. Because Andy just finds that information out from his own boss, and that's why he has been removed of the case. 
The partial fingerprint was found on the front of the hoodie, so it seems like somebody had grabbed Ben, maybe there was some sort of tackling involved before he was stabbed and then possibly pushed off the ravine. So they are in the process of getting a search warrant to search the barber house and also the warrant for Jacob's arrest. However, we know that Jacob has just walked away. So the police is just looking for him and eventually that evening they found him on this playground. He was just literally chilling there, scared, hiding and not wanting to come out. Upon his arrest, as he's sitting in the car, Jacob tells this police officer that he didn't kill Ben. He only found him. So basically, he was the person, just like the witness that called the police, that tried turning him around, hence why that fingerprint would be there, and then realized how much blood there is, he freaked out, he turned him back over, and then just ran. So he tells that to his parents that visit him in jail as well, and they tell him, you know, tomorrow, first thing, we're gonna go to the court to pay for your bail. And he's saying, well, what if we don't have the money? And the parents are kind of like, yeah, we have the savings, like, we'll figure it out. Just, you know, bear with us, like, basically, you're just gonna have to spend the night in jail, and then tomorrow you'll be out. Jacob insists during this meetup that he didn't kill him. He's saying, like, I know I'm not a perfect kid, but I didn't kill Ben. And the parents believe him. They return to the empty house. You see the notifications on the news. You see Sarah, Derek, like, other kids seeing them in these various situations. And then you see Leonard Potts, who is inside of a diner, We've just also seen it on the TV that is up there as he's eating his food. And we see him opening around 11 pictures in his photo roll on his phone. And all of the pictures are of Ben. Just Ben surrounded by friends. Ben walking home from school. Ben just jumping out of a bus. Literally full-on stalking mode. So he selects all of the pictures and clicks delete. The next morning, Jacob is picked up from jail as they head to court for the bail to be set up. And we see that their lawyer is Joanna, the same person who was defending Leonard Putz, the one with the best specs in this series. Where did you get them? Where did you get those glasses, actress that plays Joanna? Oh, good. It's not like you're communicating with the actual characters. You haven't lost it completely yet. Great. In the parking lot, she's advising the family, basically, not to make eye contact with anybody, not to show any emotion, if possible, and definitely to resist attempting to answer any questions that those paparazzi and reporters are going to throw at them, which is going to be the hardest part because they're going to start throwing some questions. So they head to court, and here we find out that on the prosecution side, representing the state is Neil, the guy that we see in the flash forwards when it comes to the grand jury. And this guy says, like, I mean, Jacob is a flight risk, like, he's a potential murder suspect, set the bail to half a million. And the judge is like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Like, we're gonna go with what Joanna said and set it to 10k. So, we see Andy paying for this bail and then Jacob getting out. 
From this point on, the narrative changes, because you can hear it even from the advice that they're getting from Joanna, from the lawyer, to literally, like, how the paparazzi, how the media is still treating them, and then how does that reflect in the eyes of the Rifkin family, how the family of the victim sees them as well. And that is that, in the eyes of the public, it's not only Jacob who is guilty, but the whole family. As they head back home, Jacob falls asleep in the car. Sort of Lori tries to talk to him and she realizes, oh, he's just fallen asleep, so I guess his consciousness is okay. They tell him that they're gonna get him a new laptop and a phone because the current ones are being inspected by the police. As they make it home and they send Jacob back to his room to get some rest, Andy tells Lori that something seems heavy on his chest. He needs to tell her something about his dad. And at the same time, Sarah gets a call from Derek, who wants to speak about a lawyer that apparently came to question him. The next day, they meet up with Joanna, and she tells them that Jacob is going to be tried as an adult. Basically, what she thinks the prosecution team is going to do, that they are going to try to portray that Ben possibly bullied Jacob, that Jacob couldn't take it, and that this was some sort of revenge killing. But the evidence is at best circumstantial. Yeah, he takes that route to go back from school. He had a knife, but that knife still isn't determined to be a murder weapon. And there was that partial fingerprint. But there was nothing really concrete for the prosecution here. However, this is when Lori decides to share what Andy had shared last night about his dad. And apparently, Andy's father didn't just leave them when they were kids, as he was telling Lori, apparently, through his whole marriage. Rather, Andy's father is inside of a prison cell, serving a life term for killing a girl when he was a teenager. Not just killing, but stabbing this girl to death. Lori is now scared that the prosecution might be able to use this to say that it's genetics, you know, the murder gene that was passed on from father to son, then to the grandson. And nobody knew this. Like, Jacob is pissed. They go to lunch after this, and he's really pissed with Andy for never sharing this with them. And I'm like... Bitch, like, you were hiding so much shit. You were literally not up front with anybody. Why are you pissed? In the flash-forward, we see Neil asking Andy on the atmosphere in the house, post-arrest and posting the bail. And then, in the flashback, we see that Andy still persists that Leonard Potts had something to do with this. So, he's desperate, he goes to Duffy, giving her the police file that he somehow has in his possession still, just playing the friend's card and asking her to look into him. And Duffy is like, were we ever friends? Like, we are colleagues, okay? Go, Duffy. This is one of the best things done on this show. I was like, yes, your colleagues don't have to be your friends. Just don't stop with the bestie. Stop with a friend. No, if they're just your colleagues and you know you will not hang out with them once you leave the workplace, then just remain colleagues for fuck's sake. They don't have to have you on WhatsApp. You don't have to have a group chat. Why are you so heated about it? <laughs> It's like me speaking to the past Maya. Anyways, um, that is a lesson that I have learned the hard way. And 
Well, she basically kind of fucks him off, but tells him, okay, I mean, I'm still gonna look into it. And we see the atmosphere inside of the Barber household isn't the best. They have hired a tutor for Jacob because, well, he can't really go to school. It's too much speculation, and they're still investigating him, preparing him for the trial. We find out that they have prohibited him to go online. They urged him not to search his name, to look through any other news articles on him. But we also see how this is affecting both Laurie and Andy. Andy is out of the job until this case is basically solved. Nobody really wants him in that office because maybe his son is a killer. And then we see Laurie return to her work and her colleagues basically be like, what is she doing here? And then her speaking with her manager who is sort of saying like... It might be the best for the board for you not to return using that politically correct lingo, basically telling her, like, you're kind of on paid leave as well until this is sorted out. We can't really have you voicing our commercials and shit when your own child might be a killer. In terms of Jacob, he is more withdrawn, but he also doesn't seem to be phased. It just doesn't seem to touch him, really. Like, we see Andy, you know, walking past his room and hearing Jacob say, like, you're dead to me. And then he's, like, opening the room, pissed off, like, what the fuck, what is this language, man? Like, this is recorded, like, it can be used in court. And... Jacob is just playing a game. And again, it's like League of Legends or whatever, where you are basically on a call with other people. So Andy's just telling him, like, stop using that language, literally. Just like Derek did in that social media post, perception is everything here. In that conversation, Jacob tells his dad that, yeah, there's this weirdo that created a fan page on me, and Andy just doesn't understand. Nobody really understands when people create fan pages on murders. Just stop it. Just quit it. And probably what affected the family the worst was when Andy got out to just, like, meet his wife in a car, And then he saw Lori's look in her eyes when she spotted somebody graffitiing their garage with words murderer rot in hell. Murderer rot in hell was spelled without a comma after the murder, by the way. Just wanted to say, if any grammar Nazis are out there, this triggered me. Yes, I feel you on the next level. If you have watched this show and have seen this, I was like, why? Just why? Why would you trigger me like this? There's so many things triggering here. Why would you do this? As Andy goes to wash that inscription off, Lori goes out for a run. And during this run, a memory pops back into her head. A memory of young Jacob. They were just in the bowling alley, and Jacob seemed to be hovering over this boy, just like with the whole ass ball, as if he's going to smash it against his head. And nobody noticed, only her, and literally she was in a conversation with somebody's mom, and she sort of like, again, ran to stop it. But that has now, in retrospect, been haunting her. And then we see them in this office of this psychiatrist or psychologist that is going to be examining Jacob prior to the trial. So she is going to then testify in court if the trial was to happen. Her name is Dr. Fogel, and she is a specialist in genetic inheritance in behavior. So basically, she is to examine if, you know, the murder gene is a whole ass thing, and just to assess... Jacob from the psychological standpoint. And uh, (laughs) this character is played by Debbie's mom. 
from Never Have I Ever. That is what the show is called, right? By Mindy Kaling. Watch it on Netflix. Listen, if you need something light after this, watch it. I was like, whoa, hey, I've recognized another character. I love it. It's not all about Chris Evans, okay? As Davy's mom, Dr. Fogel, is asking them about the childhood, you see that both of them disagree on how they saw Jacob as a kid. It seems like Andy is jumping into Laurie's sentences that he has perceived Jacob as a completely normal child. But Laurie is saying that he was difficult, that he constantly cried, that you couldn't really stop him, that he was having tantrums. We find out from Lori that there were complaints from other parents in daycare, even when he was four years old, that he pushed a kid at a playground. But she doesn't share that memory in the bowling alley. And Andy, jumping into her sentences, is saying that he was just an ordinary boy, that the pediatrician at the time said the same thing. They said it's just going to pass. And Lori kind of turns to him, being like, well, did it pass? Like, why are we here then, if it did? As they return from this meeting with the doctor, we realize Lori was supposed to meet her best friend who prepared the dinner for her. She's like, oh my god, how kind, you know, they know what we are going through. But then her husband is friends with the Rifkins, so basically she gave her that dinner and then told her, we kind of can't really hang out anymore. So Lori is fuming inside of the house. She threw that dinner into the bin, she ordered something for them to eat, and then immediately after that just went outside as soon as Jacob was back in his room to actually paint over that graffiti. That day we also see Potts, who is on his lunch break, creepily watching another teenager. And you're like, this man is liability. Like, whether or not he's guilty for this, he should be behind bars. He shouldn't just be out there observing teenagers. And we also see Daffy get a call. She's literally sitting, waiting for those tips to pour in. And the call is made by Sarah, who says that she knows something about the murder. But next, we pick up with the Barber family is again in the office as they're talking with Joanna. As they're talking about the knife and how it can be used by the prosecution in terms of, like, him planning a revenge on Ben after being bullied, well, Andy admits that they got rid of the knife as they thought it was a dangerous weapon. Then Joanna turns onto his walk. So, is this the usual walk that he would take as going home? And she starts questioning him as if Jacob is already on the stand, as if he was to take it. She's asking him, what did he come across? So, according to Jacob, he again came across Ben just lying there. He called his name, said that he was lying face down, so he couldn't recognize him. And after realizing it was Ben, after sort of taking him by the hoodie and turning him over, he didn't cry out for help, didn't call 911. In Jacob's words, he thought it might have been an accident. So, he thought, I should get out of here before I'm the one in trouble. And upon prodding and prodding at him, Jacob can't remember. Was he just standing? Was he hovering over him? And Jonah is basically saying, like, well... The partial fingerprint was on the inside of his hoodie, so it would only make sense if you were, you know, hovering over him. If you were just squatting and then turning him around, and Jacob is like, well, I guess that's what happened then. You're like, kid, the thing that I'm questioning you here is gonna get ten times harder if this actually goes to trial. Like, you need to do better. 
The witness to Jacob's behavior later was Derek, and according to Derek, who saw him only a couple of hours after, he described him as being in a good mood. Upon this questioning, both lawyers in the room realize, yeah, there's no way that if the trial happens, that Jacob is going up on that stand, like, it's just not happening, because the story has so many holes. But they tell him not to worry, because the burden of proof is with the prosecution. So they just need to attack their case. Andy stays behind to talk to Joanna, and she tells him that the knife that they found as the murder weapon doesn't match the knife that Jacob had back then. Andy still keeps insisting that Joanna and everybody should start looking into Putz, that that would be that other story, because in trial, this story has a lot of holes, and they have to create the reasonable doubt in the eyes of the jury, and, you know, for that, they just need to invent the possibility that somebody else could have been behind it in order to get the mistrial, in order to find him not guilty. As they reach home, Lori picks up the post, and she sees a letter, like a huge one, addressed to her. But she decides to hide it under the kitchen counter, so she's gonna go after dinner and check it out. And here, what this series does really well is that it shows the gradual decline. I mean, it was a slow burn. It's about, like, eight episodes. But here, during the dinner, we can see that it's taken a toll on the whole family. Like, the conversation is stalling, and Jacob is kind of snappy. So, Lori snaps back at him. She says, I mean, you know, tomorrow we can eat at the diner. So, the whole town stares at us. He's like, I'm sorry, like, what the fuck is going on? Because he can't read the cues, the social cues. So, she says, you know, tomorrow we're just gonna order pizza. It's fine. And after dinner, the two of them are watching, and I swear this is Airplane, or it is the same actor from, like, the 80s and stuff. Basically, Andy and Jacob are just watching a movie in the living room, and you can see in Andy's eyes, like, that he is going to miss this moment if, you know, his son was to go to jail. There is some sort of sense of normality, at least, here. And Lori sneaks upstairs to open that envelope that she has gotten, and inside it's articles upon articles about the murder and rape of a 19-year-old girl that was committed by Andy Barber's dad. Without sharing this with Andy, when they're in bed, she just asks him before they both go to sleep, is there any part of you that believes that he is guilty? And then, the next day, Andy has had enough. He knows that the investigation isn't really moving anywhere. It's sort of rather moving towards the prosecution's version of events, preparing for the trial. That he's going to blame everything on his son. So he starts moving mad a bit, okay? Due to him being in the possession, somehow, of Leonard Potts's file, he decides to track the victim in that case down. The victim that actually sent Leonard Potts to jail. And he knocks on the door of this rundown house, the mom opens it, and you just immediately get the vibe that, you know, this isn't, like, a really healthy freaking household. The mom has no clue, like, what her son has been up to. The son's name is Matt, and he's in the room with his girlfriend, and Andy, of course, wants to talk to him. Andy tells him that he has read through his file and that he doesn't buy it, like, in a library, groping you in a library. You seem to have skipped school today to be inside of this room with your girlfriend. So, basically, he just blatantly attacks him. Like, was he your dealer 
or a lover. And Matt gets pissed off. He asks his mom to kick Andy out. So she does. But Andy still, as he is leaving, tells Matt if he knows something, like, come and reach out. Like, tell me something. Listen, I'm desperately trying to save my kid here. Next, we see Andy isn't done yet. He's literally following Pats around town. Like, he is learning where he works, where he lives, literally learning everything about him, trying to figure out if he's still doing the same thing in order for them to actually have some probable cause to look into him. And as he returns home and goes to say hi to Jacob, again, he hears certain noises, like, shoot him like that. And he's like, fuck's sake, I told this kid. And as he opens the door, Sarah is there. She seems to have befriended Jacob suddenly, and she's just chilling, playing League of Legends or whatever with him. Andy kind of, like, goes into the dad mode, just apologizing, like, oh my god, I'm so sorry for interrupting this moment. Uh, Do you want dinner? You're gonna eat dinner later once she leaves? Okay, cool. So, he leaves the room, and he calls Lori. He's like, yo, you won't believe this. And he's speaking to Lori as she's literally sitting and stalking out this work party that she was supposed to attend, but now her life has turned upside down. And she lies to Andy, telling him that she's having a dinner with her co-worker, while literally all of her co-workers are in this place. So we know she isn't. Then we see Lori eating on her own inside of this diner. And she's sort of like at the bar area, just eating her salad, you know, wanting to get it over with in this part of town that she has probably never even eaten in. And this woman kind of interrupts her. She's like, hey, can I have some sugar for my coffee? Like, you know, it's just placed over here by your left hand. And she's like, yeah, sure. And she spots what book this woman is reading. So the two of them start up a conversation. And as this woman sits down, she's about to order her food. Lori just tells her, like, I mean, finish my mind. Like, I don't really have the appetite. Just, like, take it. Like, I already paid for it. This woman accepts it, and then she feels bad about it. She asks Lori to join her at the table, and Lori seems just to have been waiting for somebody to talk to. So, she pours her soul out. Tells her about how her son is a suspect in this murder case. You must have heard about it. She doesn't tell anything about the Jacob and about the whole home situation, but she just says how it's affecting her life and, you know, Andy's life. But Andy is coping with it differently because he never really had any friends. And during this conversation, the woman says, well, um... I didn't want to say it, but I am a journalist for this Globe newspaper. And Lori is immediately understanding of what this means. Like, this woman has just milked information out of her. She's going to publish it tomorrow. She's, like, replaying what has she said. And this woman is like, as Lori is leaving, do you want anything taken off the record that you said? Lori's pissed. She storms out. She reaches home. She doesn't tell anything to anybody because she's ashamed. Like, why did she just cave in? Joanna told them that there are going to be journalists in town, and she just didn't read the situation right. 
She just gives Andy the classic, you know, I'm tired, nothing is going on excuse. And as the two of them go to bed, we see Jacob in his room create a social media profile, something that everybody has advised him against, and then add Sarah on it. He then confirms that it's him via text message, just saying like, hey, I just created this because on Instagram you post your music videos. She basically just plays the guitar and then posts it on the social and he wants to listen to her songs. In their bedroom, Andy is telling Lori how after they had toast for dinner, basically like sandwich, you know, the dad's level of cooking, how Jacob told him that when he was chatting with Sarah, Sarah said that Derek might be a suspect, you know, that maybe that is why he accused him of something, so that that was the inclination. And you can see that Andy knows he's gonna do everything in order to protect his son. You just know next day he's gonna be on to Derek's ass. Whatever he has been doing today, you know, stalking people as his idol, his next target is Derek. We are back to that flash forward with Grand Jury, where Neil asks Andy, you didn't grow up scared that there might be some part of your father in you? To which Andy responded, I knew Jacob wasn't a murderer the way I knew I wasn't. So there was never a single doubt in his head. And Neil asks, what about Lori? Did she ever doubt in Jacob's story? Also, you had years knowing who your dad was to make that conclusion, that the murder gene isn't responsible, to make that conclusion that you knew you don't share that gene with your father. But Lori is a different story. And here we see Jacob undergoing a CT scan, which if he was to be found guilty, then they might want to present this genetic evidence for mitigating circumstances to get him off on like second degree murder because of genetics. The doctor here takes the swab from Andy as well, and then she tells him, well, we need the swab from the actual perpetrator here, from your dad in prison. And Andy responds like he's not doing that, he's not gonna speak to his dad after all of this time. But Lori reminds him, you said everything for your son. And we see Andy walking into the prison to speak with his dad. No need to say, his dad is a character. He's been chilling in his prison without his kid giving a fuck about him, so he's kind of eggy and just pissed off about that. He's saying to Andy, like, what kind of son turns back on his own father? I am still your father, you know. They kind of chat about their mom, and we find out that cancer got to her. So Andy asks him not to talk about her. When they come to the topic of why Andy is actually there after so many years, he's saying, like, yes, his son is a suspect in a murder trial, but, you know, he's innocent. And the dad is like, yeah, me too, of course. It it must run in the family, the whole innocence thing. But Andy's dad is back to being pissed off. He's back to blaming Andy on being a lawyer, literally studying, then practicing the law in courts, trying to defend other people, but never even considering to reach out to his father to have his sentence reduced. So he says, I'm gonna spit on a swab if, you know, I get some leniency here, if I get a couple of less years off my sentence, you know, if I was to walk out tomorrow, sure, whatever, I spit on a swab. And then he's like, yeah, no way, there was no point to this. So he just leaves. 
After this failed visit, Andy meets up with Joanna, and she suggests, like, I mean, I can always subpoena him, I can always get the court order for him to actually take the swab, but he says, basically, that would mean that that information can then be used in court, and that's what we are trying to avoid here. Joanna also tells him about the article in the newspapers, because that journalist on the sly has indeed published that article, and it was titled something like, Every Mother's Worst Nightmare, and it's basically just shitting over the whole situation, like what the parents are going through, and also what Andy has been going through, and as Andy faces Lori back at home, you know, asking her, well, why didn't you tell me? She just said, out of shame. She was just vulnerable. But we see how that spills into her actual life when she's in this supermarket seeing Ben's mom in a different aisle. And the two of them were, like, the only ones there. You see the angst. Like, Lori was actually having anxiety, like, in the car. Like, does she go in? And then she does, and Ben's mom is the only other person in this supermarket. And she approaches Lori and spits into her face. So, Lori is just immediately freaked out and runs out of there. As expected, Andy is after Derek, but he doesn't go to speak directly to him. Rather, he corners Duffy in her gym, and there he asks her about him. Like, he has heard, you know, from Sarah telling Jacob that somebody came into school, meaning Duffy, to question Derek about, you know, his social media posts and whatnot. So, like, he just wonders, is he being treated as a suspect? And Duffy tells him, no, he has an alibi. That day, his mom drove him to school. So, Jacob figures, okay, in that case, the information lies with a person that tipped off Duffy and the police to go to speak to Derek. And the only logical conclusion would be that that person is Sarah. So, he goes to an ice cream shop, because this is apparently Sarah's part-time job. And in her break, he gets her to basically meet him at this bench and speak to her. We see that before meeting up with Sarah and after meeting up with Duffy, that he had actually followed Derek and his mom. After bursting his mom's tire so that she is delayed, Andy then approached Derek, just sitting on this bench, knowing that his mom is going to take a while. He asked him, why were you so quick to say that my son did it? Our lawyer is saying that this is just you drawing the attention from yourself. Even the police officer, Duffy, is saying that she is looking at you differently. And Derek just utters, "It's, it's nothing. It's just that thing that Sarah said. And then he stops himself. Derek continues saying, you think you know your son, but you don't. That he is into these creepy cutter websites. It's some cutter porn, some next-level violence. There is a website called Cut Up Room, and apparently Jacob has a dark side, and he's super into it. Now, back to Andy speaking with Sarah, having this information in mind, and probably having googled what cutter porn is. He is asking her... Well, 
you are the one that sent me that anonymous tip, right? Like the whole social media post that got Andy to look for the knife in the first place. Sarah says she did, and she was also the person to give a tip to Duffy. She tells him the whole story. We see Ben Rifkin alive in a class with Sarah, and the two of them are kind of sitting across. They're just writing, but you see that they're exchanging looks. There is some chemistry there. And after, you see Sarah taking a nude in her home. She makes sure that her face is out of the picture, but she kind of says that, like, it's very obvious whose picture it was. And upon Ben's request, she sends it to him. The next day, Ben is bragging inside of the changing room how he is going to get blowjob from Sarah. So we see how he might be blackmailing Sarah. And Derek overhears Ben saying this. So he steals Ben's phone. And we see him running towards Sarah's house, telling her that he has her phone, that, you know, they can delete the picture off of it and be done with it. But Sarah tells him she doesn't want Ben's phone. It's stolen. So Derek leaves and two days after that, Ben was dead. With this information, Andy gathered the whole family and invited Joanna as well to discuss it all inside of their home. And Joanna is saying how that's great news. You know, it's reasonable doubt if the case goes to trial to represent to the jury that there is somebody else that could be potentially a suspect. And you can see Jacob during this conversation fuming, just sitting and seething. So as soon as Joanna leaves, Laurie's like, you've been unusually quiet. And he's like, how do you not see it? Sarah was literally hanging out with me. She was pretending to be my friend just because she felt bad for me. This whole time, she knew who did it. And he goes back to his room and texts her, slut. There are now seven weeks before the trial, and Andy and Jacob go fishing the next day, just sort of to be outside of the realm of everybody observing them, judging them, and also to do some father-son activity, because the whole hovering thing above their heads is, what if he is convicted, goes to jail, we need to make the most out of the time we have. And as that is happening, Lori is just cleaning out the house, and she sees in this cupboard that she's just placing the towels, the baby album. And you see that she has just decided upon something. We'll find out just what as Joanna gives Andy a call, just as they're returning their rods and going back home. And she tells him that they have Ben's phone in their possession, so if there is any picture on it, they're about to find it. And also that his dad agreed upon a swap test. So as Andy returns home, he's just facing Lori, saying you went to visit him inside of a prison. And she says she had to do it because they agreed. They're doing everything in order to protect their child. The next morning, just before Andy and Joanna can go to the police station to go through Ben's phone, after obviously the police did, he, during the night, keeps getting phone calls. And as soon as he responds, there's just loud music in the background, but nobody's saying a word. And we can see that the caller is Matt, Patsy's victim, just pacing up and down his room, but not daring to say a thing. Andy is going through all of the messages, all of the pictures on Ben's phone, and the only thing he can find there are just the endearing messages between Ben and his mom and his dad. 
And as that's happening, Jacob is having his last meeting with Dr. Fogel. During his meetings with Dr. Fogel, some of them were just him chatting about things. Some of them were kind of Rorschach test-based. So he would be shown different images in order to see his reactions. It's literally like, oh, sunshine and butterflies to like beheaded figures on the screen. So basically for her to see, you know, how he reacts to violence. And as those visits were happening, at one point Lori came by herself. She wanted to tell the doctor about that memory that she had of her son almost throwing a whole ball onto another child in a bowling alley. And this woman said, I mean... There's not really much to that. I can't really tell you anything about that, except that you might need to see somebody and speak to somebody about it. This last session ends with Dr. Fogel just telling Lori that the next time it's going to be just the parents. Basically, she's going to give them the report in a couple of days. And then we go back to the grand jury memory, where Neil is getting Andy to tell him what he found on Ben's phone. Getting him to admit that they went through everything and couldn't find anything confirming that Ben is in any way, shape, or form like a blackmailer, this bully, this bad person that everybody portrayed him to be. In the past, just after examining Ben's phone, we see Andy speak with Joanna. And she tells him her niece told her that Jacob is online again, that he has created a social media profile. So Andy is reasonably so pissed. He barges into Jacob's room back home, asking him to show him. And then Lori is kind of following him, like, what the fuck is going on? And Jacob not only created this profile, but he has made a meme out of himself holding an axe. And he just doesn't realize how bad this looks. So Andy immediately gets him to delete it, saying that if this reaches the court, if any single one of those kids took a screenshot of that, and you bet it did, it shows the consciousness of guilt. During that night, the few hours that they're getting of sleep, that phone keeps ringing. And this time, Matt finally speaks up on the other side. Here, Matt tells him the story of what was actually going on between him and Leonard Potts. Apparently, he met him playing this arcade. And Potts just approached him, offering to pay up to give him like a couple of quarters for it. After that, Pats, who seems to be proficient in grooming, asks Matt to sit down with him for a free meal. And then he offers Matt to go to the flat with him. So Matt says he wasn't dumb. He knew that they're not just going to go to the flat to chill. So he says if he offered him some money, the only thing Matt is going to accept to do is just for Pats to touch him through the pants for money. This was a cash exchange that kept on happening until Potts told him that he didn't want to pay him anymore because there was a new kid that he was interested in called Ben. Matt also says that he knew that Leonard had a gun. As Matt is saying this, the camera lens moves around and we see that he is actually saying this in the courtroom, in front of his mom, in front of Andy, in front of the DA, and Joanna, and in front of Neil, working for the prosecution. And Neil is trying to poke holes in this story, checking why did he wait to come forward. But Matt says that he heard about Jacob and didn't want him to go down 
for what he believed Leonard did. So Neil kind of tries to get this out of the way, because if he doesn't, then there might be a search warrant to search Leonard Potts' flat, suggesting that Andy maybe paid him, because, hey, Matt would do anything for the money. But Matt insists that he is actually telling the truth. After they leave, Neil tries to convince the DA office not to actually get that search warrant, but they do. So they get into that flat and they're looking for everything. They turn it upside down, but they don't find a knife in Patsy's flat. The next morning, as Lori goes out on her morning run, she notices a car tailing her. And this car she has seen before. It seemed to be parked up near their house. Seems like somebody was actually checking on them. Somebody might seem to be stalking them. When they saw it last, a couple of nights before, Andy spotted it. He got Lori to get out and see if she recognizes the car, but the person already drove away. But as Lori continues running and this person keeps tailing her, she's freaking out. So she realizes she has to jump a fence, basically avoid all of the roads in order for him not to be able to follow her. So she jumps this fence and runs back home. And here they call Duffy, who basically says, well, if you see them again, if you see that same car, just make sure to take the license plates and then we can report it. Andy pleads with Duffy not to give up on Pats, even though she doesn't seem to be buying into Matt's story. And as the two of them get ready, they go to Dr. Fogel's office in order to hear the report on their son. They find out that the dad that's in prison and Andy both tested positive for the mutation, meaning that they both have that murder gene, but Jacob doesn't. And they're kind of like, okay, where is the but? Like, this seems to be great information, but you don't seem pleased. To which Dr. Fogel tells them that he does display violent behavior tendencies, antisocial tendencies, manipulative behavior. That when she would strike up conversations upon people dying, that Jacob's response would be, well, people die by the millions every day. That he didn't really have the capacity for empathy. Lori then asks her, well, do you think that he did it? And the doctor says she's not really allowed to give them the response. And after leaving this room, they have gone to this place. I think it's like a Chinese restaurant, but it has one of those private rooms. Because on this day, the day before the trial, it is Jacob's 15th birthday. He keeps questioning them on the report, and they're trying to pretend like, you know, Lori just didn't change her opinion completely and isn't starting to believe that her son might be guilty. So they just tell him, you don't have the murder gene. Like, everything is great. And as they return from this restaurant, that same car is parked up. So Andy goes to his trunk, reaches out for a crowbar, and goes to face whoever this person is. The man inside of the car just tells him, you should go back to your family. And Andy took down the license plates as the man drove away, gave them to Duffy, and the registration number was to a different kind of vehicle. So Duffy tells him they're going to put somebody to patrol the neighborhood. And Andy just walks back in, saying to the family, like, it must be just a reporter, you know, somebody who is looking for an inn. 
The next day, we see the whole family enter the courtroom. And here we have a flashback of Andy and Neil, the lawyer that is working for the prosecution now. And it was inside of a bar after Neil's first case. Andy was just sort of giving him feedback, like, this is exactly what you need to do. When you speak to the jury, you try to be as close to them, to just look and make eye contact with them so they know that you're talking to them. You also have mentioned the defendant's name a couple of times. Just try to distance yourself from them and say just the defendant. And then now in court, we see that Neil is working against them. Joanna starts off by asking Andy to be her second chair. And she's also getting the judge to read the motion that she has submitted in order to exclude information on the grandpa, on the murder gene. The witness list she is requesting also has to be expanded to two other people. One is Matt and the other one is Leonard Petz. In his opening statement, Neil said that murder was the family business. Implementing the advice that Andy gave him, he is referring to Jacob as the defendant, not by his name. The question remains why? And Neil has the answer for the jury, which is that kids can be mean. Ben teased the defendant, mocked him, unaware of his desires and capacities. Maybe Ben called him a name, threatened him, we just don't know. All we know is that he punched his knife three times into Ben's chest. In Joanna's opening statement, she is stating that people want somebody to pay. It is only human, but Jacob is innocent that the state made a rush to judgment because of the fingerprint, but they are going to show to them how it got there. That Jacob panicked, thinking that he is going to become the suspect himself because the victim was the boy that bullied him. Does he wish he'd been braver from the start? Of course he wished, but boys make mistakes. But we are adults, and we have the great responsibility on us, and the responsibility here is not to destroy another child's life. As they leave the courtroom that day, they spot that guy, the guy from the car, the guy that was taking them out. He's just standing across the street, and Duffy rings Andy, saying that he seems to be an old gangster. They have no idea why this man is following them, like he isn't a reporter, and that they can't arrest him unless he threatens them. But they know the only person who would have such a contact would be the grandpa, the guy that is behind bars. And that grandpa seems to have found a number for the barber household because he rings Andy that evening, saying, do everything, like, put pets under the bus, do everything, just keep that kid out of this place. The next day in court, they questioned the witness who said she had heard a voice saying, stop, you're hurting me. Next, I question the detective who was called upon the scene of the crime, and Neil asks her, has she ever heard of a prosecutor being involved in their own child's case? So she says no. And then Joanna, on the cross-examination, asks, was there a murder weapon? Was there ever any evidence that was found from the beginning of the investigation? You had no obvious suspects. You initially pursued Pets, a registered sex offender who lived near the park and walked around that area. He even admitted to being in the park that same morning. Neil then goes to ask that same detective, well, whose idea was it to pursue Pets? And she admits that it was Andy's. 
Joanna then fires one last question at this detective, asking him, did you ever have any issues with any decisions that Andy has made regarding pets? And the detective says, no, Andy was one of the best ones that they had. Next on the stand is this lab technician, in order to discuss the blood evidence. During their questioning, they confirmed there were only small spatters of blood. So, Neil suggests maybe the defendant could have stood behind the victim, and that's why the blood wasn't on their clothes. He suggests, what if this were a murder weapon? What if these wounds were made with a knife like this? And he pulls out what we believe is to be Jacob's knife. So, on the cross-examination, because Neil opened the door for the knife to be discussed, Joanna asks about the knife. Did this lab technician ever see it? Did they compare it to other knife wounds? And the lab tech confirms that the chances of the knife being the weapon are small. Next, they bring Duffy on the stand to testify about interviewing the students, who all confirmed that Ben was bullying the defendant and how the defendant was viewed as a suspect because of that. She revealed how they knew that Jacob had a knife, but then the warrant didn't result in them finding one. That nothing was found on the laptop, but Neil uncovered that there was this scraper on the laptop, meaning that it would be gradually removing his search history and any downloads that he might have had. Neil also asks Duffy, what did they find that this scraper didn't remove? And Duffy says that there was some violent porn, some torture and cutter porn. And we kind of zoom in on Lori, who was never told this by Andy or anybody else. And she is just finding it out for the first time in court. During the cross-examination, though, Joanna says, well, detective, how long have you been doing this job? Oh, that long. Have you ever found a single laptop without porn on it? And she kind of gets the chuckle from the jury as well. And who was the person to bring pets to Andy's attention? It was also you. So, it's not like he is just on this goose chase for no reason. And did, at any point, Andy behave, suggesting he suspected his own son, to which Duffy says no. But Neil gets up and has one last question, asking Duffy, has she ever seen Andy be violent? To which Duffy recalls this memory of Andy and Neil, where Neil provoked him about his dad, and his dad being in jail, the whole murder gene, and Andy kind of grabbed him by his shirt. And Duffy starts saying, you know, once when you provoked him about his dad, but now, you know, you can't undo that, you can't unsay that. So, Joanna approaches the bench, well, asks the judge to approach the bench, to get this thing out, to basically get the jury to, you know, take it out of their thoughts because the motion still hasn't been approved. They shouldn't be taking this murder gene thing into consideration. Judge asks Neil not to repeat this kind of shit or it's gonna go immediately to mistrial and he asks the jury to unring the bell. In the next grand jury flash forward, we see Neil asking Andy, was he prepared for day four? We find out that day four was when Derek testified. 
The day started off badly already. Joanna approached Andy saying that Matt is supposed to testify the next day, but he's in the wind. But, you know, don't worry about it now. Focus on this. They're going to track him down later. Derek then took the stand to speak about the few hours after Jacob supposedly found Ben, how he even cracked a joke, how they were playing games in Jacob's house, and how Ben had it in for Jake, how there was a motive there. He called him the F-slur, mocking him about possibly being gay in front of the people, but Jacob took it all in. He was privately angry about it. He wasn't showing it to the public, only to some of his best friends. Derek spoke about Jacob showing his knife off. He liked having it on him. It seemed to be like this secret thing that he had. And then Derek said he was still his friend. He was still believing in his story until he found a story posted a few days after Ben's death. Neil leads him on, saying, oh, are you referring to the J-O-B stories? And John is immediately pissed, like, this wasn't brought in before, we didn't know, this was mentioned in the discovery. So she approaches the judge, and you can see her, like, skim read the document, being like, fuck, this is bad. Like, this is bad. She approaches both Andy and Jacob, sort of being like, why didn't you tell us about this so that we are prepared? And Andy asks her, like, how bad it is? Like, can we get it excluded? And she just says, no, we're going to have to fight it. And then you see Derek read it out. J.O.B. was this story where the characters were given different names, but it pretty much describes the crime as it happened. The victim falling back, rolling down the slope, the perpetrator going down to make sure that they were dead, and then washing the night off in a small stream nearby. And this story was posted three days after Ben's body was found. After this day in court, the atmosphere in the car is tense. And Andy just turns around and asks Jacob, just tell me, did you kill him? The tables have completely turned now, and in the Barber household, they are discussing bringing Sarah in in order to refute what Derek had said. Jacob said he doesn't want her brought into this mess again, but they're saying, your opinion doesn't matter anymore, not after today, not after what happened, you don't have a say in this. We see now the story being shared on the internet, and we see Sarah read it herself, and all of the comments and notifications popping on from people saying, we didn't believe it until now, but after that story, where the crime is described in such a detail, we can't doubt it anymore. After Jacob goes upstairs to his room, we see that the parents have changed the mood. Lori, who was always on the fence, now is saying that she doesn't believe him, not after today, and if they protect him, that they are just as guilty. But you see that Andy still believes that, yes, this looks bad, he knows it, he can't deny it. But by that point, three days after the murder, Every single detail, and he had read this with Joanna, has already been confirmed by the news. So it's not like, you know, he is reliving it and putting in the details that were not mentioned by anybody else, by the killer. So he says to Lori, nobody can sustain that level of deception. And Lori says, yeah, right, you did for how many years without telling me, you know, about your dad? 
Maybe he learned it from both of us. In the other part of town, we see Pets reading his subpoena to testify in court. And he turns the paper over and starts writing, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Rifkin, I killed Ben. The next morning, Joanna rings Andy, saying that Pets confessed he had hung himself and he has left a note behind. So she moved in for the dismissal, first thing. We see them in court, Jacob standing up, and the judge saying, Jacob Barber, you're now a free man. Inside of the parking lot, Ben's dad, the victim's dad, runs after them, saying, like, I know you did it. Doesn't matter that this was now dismissed. Like, I know that you were the one behind it. And as he's running to sort of tackle Jacob or Andy or both of them, the gangster guy, the stalker guy, just immediately emerges from the middle of nowhere and tackles Ben's dad. And they're like the fuck? We thought you were stalking us? What the fuck is going on? After Ben's dad leaves, he tells Andy, give your dad my best. So Andy's like, fuck, like he knows my dad? So that means my dad from prison is sending this guy to protect our family. In the flash forward, Neil asks Andy, did things go back to normal after this moment? And Andy says there was no normal. There was before and after. We find out that Laurie got a job offer in Colorado. Andy went to speak to his previous boss. And, you know, you're sort of thinking, okay, he got back to go back to work. But he only found out then, when speaking to them, that the police file was only closed now. So, like, weeks after the trial, that they had a few things that they had to clarify. And that put the seed back into his head, you know, about how easy it is for him, Andy, to just, when he's thinking about protecting a family member, take the crowbar out of the trunk and just about his own violent tendencies, that he has that murder gene, about all of the inconsistencies in this case, the suspicions that he had from the beginning, and finally about this gangster guy who has been hired, apparently, by his own dad to protect the family. So we see him walking inside of a prison again to speak to his dad. He asks his dad, did he do it? Did he kill pets in order to make sure that the wrong person goes down for this and that Jacob doesn't go to prison? And now we see Pets is crying as he's writing his suicide note because there's a gun pointed at him by the gangster guy that has been stalking them. Andy tells his dad, we didn't need you. We don't need you. And his dad says, yeah, sure. It seems like you did. Like, the case seemed to have had a couple of holes even just from the news broadcast that I was getting, so not even the court documents. And he tells Andy, you can be a good man or you can be a good father. Andy leaves the prison and you know where this is going. He's not going to tell Lori jack shit. They all go to Mexico. So this is the trip that they have planned a while ago. But now that, you know, the sun has been released, they can actually travel. And here at the reception, just as they're checking into this hotel, Jacob just meets this random girl. And she knows who she is, and you're like, oh, God, this is going to be trouble. 
they keep spending the days together. They're going surfing, they're spending the time on the beach while the parents are enjoying it on their own. They have met the girl's parents as well. It all seems fine. Until the New Year's Eve, where Jacob asks his parents if he can go to this party. It's just like a party down on the beach with his girl and her friends. But when the parents return, after they celebrate their New Year's Eve to the hotel room, well, Jacob is there, and he seems to have returned earlier. He said there was a party on the beach, and then some bad crowd joined in, so he has left the girl behind. And the parents are just like, oh, well, that's all right. Did she return home? Well, we hope she did. You're like, this is, this should be a lesson for life. Like, body system. Don't leave people behind. Don't leave girls behind. What the fuck? Why is nobody addressing shit? So they go to sleep and, um, you guessed it, next morning at breakfast, the police is approaching Jacob because he's the last person to have seen this now missing woman. The police questions them for three hours. They take their passports so that they can't leave the country. And the next night, Andy just awakes in the middle of the night and he takes the alcohol from the minibar and just starts drinking. So when Lori wakes up, he tells her about that stage suicide. The next morning, the missing woman was found. She seems to have met a guy at the party. He roofied her drink, and then she woke up at his flat, and it was only the roommate that actually reported that, hey, something wrong had happened here. And then we flash forward to the grand jury moment, where Neil says to Andy, something happened in Mexico, something changed. Because upon returning, you immediately put the house on the market, neither of you still had their jobs confirmed, what were you running from? In the flashback, we see, upon returning from Mexico, Lori is driving Jacob to the hairdresser, and she starts questioning him in the car. And you can see that she is at the end of her wits. She's unhinged. She has gone through a hundred different moods. Her mental health has suffered, and she just doesn't believe him anymore. She tells him she has never asked him before. She will never stop loving him, but she needs to know had he killed Ben. Jacob says no, but Lori is speeding faster and faster, just saying, like, tell me. You know I've always loved you. Just tell me if you did it. And he eventually says, like, I did it. Just stop speeding. Like, I don't know what you want to hear. As they're speeding, Andy is calling them. Like, she's rejecting his calls as she's questioning Jacob. And he keeps calling her on repeat because he has seen in the bin the baby album of Jacob. So he is immediately concerned. Jacob keeps screaming at her to just stop, to just stop the car, to stop speeding, but instead she just swerves and hits the wall of this bridge. In the grand jury hearing, Neil asks, why isn't Lori here today? We find out that there has been an accident and that the son, Jacob, was in the intensive care unit. Before heading out to the hairdressers, Lori had also called Joanna, the attorney, and also Dr. Fogel, like in the middle of the night. So Neil tells Andy, she tried to kill your son. We see Andy in the room with his wife saying, they know it was an accident, nobody's filing any charges, and the nurses are optimistic. So she has woken up with a couple of scratches while Jacob is just attached to a bunch of machines and seems like he's in a coma. 
Laurie worries that once Jacob wakes up, he's gonna think it wasn't an accident, as she can't remember what happened that day. And the series ends with Andy returning to an empty house, sitting on his son's bed, just drinking, drowning his sorrows. It kind of draws upon that whole premise of the series, which is whatever it takes, because he has done whatever it takes to protect his family, to protect his son, and he has succeeded, just not with the greatest of the outcomes. That was Defending Jacob. What did you lot think about this one? I just didn't know. I was like, it could have gone so many ways, and then this was the way it ended. It was a really slow burn. Like, it could have definitely been, I don't know, tops four or five episodes. It didn't have to go on for eight. The part that was brilliantly done, though, is that demise of, like, the mental health. Like, I just can't even portray that in a video because that's the part that was so well done and that's exactly why I watched it, to see, you know, how the parents would be going through it, the whole thing of, like, Andy trusting him and Laurie didn't from the beginning and then how both of them kind of shift in a different way. It made you sit in that and that is why I did watch it and that's probably the reason, the main reason I would recommend people watch it. Otherwise, like, if that's not what you're looking for, you could technically skip it. Another thing that was done brilliantly here was the trial. Like, Joanna, I don't know if she played the lawyer in anything else, but I kind of hope she does. <laughs> like, or that she is a real lawyer in real life, because that was so convincing and just brilliant. And like the cross-examinations, you could really buy into it. It wasn't, you know, overly dramatized or just overly unrealistic where you're like, oh yeah, this would never happen. And that's what makes it kind of dry and slow, but it's also the parts that I enjoy the most because it was the most realistic in a way. So yeah, the conclusion is, I guess, if you are looking to go through the experience to sit in one where, you know, your child might have been accused of a crime, go for it and watch it on possibly like 1.5 speed or, you know, something along those lines. But if not, I don't know, it's, it's, it's your choice. It's not definitely one of my like top five fake crime dramas to watch. I'd be interested to know, because I know it's based on a book, what's the book like? Like, is, it, is there anything that's different? If you know, let me know in the comments, because that's something that I want to know, because I like listening to audiobooks, and I wouldn't mind listening to the audiobook if it's, like, better than the series. So you're technically recommending, because you're saying that you would want to listen to audiobook as well. What is your problem? <laughs> What's your problem? Why are you so conflicted on it? Because it was slow, and the ending wasn't the best. But then it did. It did a trick. It did what, you know, what it said on the basket. Yeah, usually baskets have inscriptions that say what the basket does. It's a basket. It holds shit. Okay, I'm gonna get out of here now. Make sure you check out the main video from Wednesday on um, the YouTube channel about the actual case where kids reported a parent for the reversal of that situation. And let me know. Would you report your own kid? Would you support them fully? Or would you see it from the perspective of most people in this case where it's not only the defendant that is seen as a suspect, that is seen as somebody who is guilty, but the parents as well. What would you do if it was up to you? And what does it say about you as a parent? 
Does it say that you're bringing up your child well, about how they are reacting in those situations, about how they are not being completely honest? And what would your decision in that particular case say about you as a parent? But now I'm out of here, I'm out, I'm gonna research another topic for the next week. And I shall be seeing you guys shortly. Okay, cool. Bye!